This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. This is a UK Coaching podcast. I am Tom Hartley. I'm a senior coach developer at UK Coaching. And on the podcast today, I'm joined by Ian Litchfield from British Fencing. And we're going to talk a bit around understanding our influences in coaching. Ian, thanks for joining us on the call today. Thanks for having me, Tom. In, uh, just to kick us off, it would be brilliant if you could just explain a little bit about yourself and where you find yourself coaching at the moment. So I've been coaching for around about 10 or 11 years now. I started fencing when I was just after seven years old. Fencing's always been my passion, so I've just loved the sport. Um, and from there, it just kind of grew. I started really learning that I was quite good at coaching from around about 17 or 18 when I started helping friends from the side of the piste when they were competing, just giving them advice from the side. And people were then commenting on the fact that the way I was seeing the sport was, um, you know, at a good standard. Fantastic. Uh, what, what is it What is it about, about coaching, Ian, that, that you really love? Um, I think personally, for me, it's a real pleasure to help people go through that journey that I really enjoyed as a fencer. So as an athlete, I really enjoyed um, getting into the sport. And I think one of the things that we can do as coaches is help people go through that journey a little bit smoother. You want them to learn mistakes along the way, but I, I really get a lot from them learning those mistakes, but recovering quicker than maybe we did when we did the sports. Um, and I love seeing their enjoyment. That's the thing for me. I find them most rewarding. Sometimes people ask me if I'd ever go back to competing and the answer for me has always been no because I get more enjoyment out of seeing other people going through that competition experience than if I was to do it for myself there's more gratitude if you like yeah absolutely absolutely so underneath that then to to yourself if you're if you're seeing that enjoyment and almost having that other centeredness as a coach what what how would you describe your your why what keeps you keeps you coaching and keeps you kind of striving to, to find out more and keep developing as a coach? I just really like the game in coaching around trying to learn faster than other coaches, trying to get good results for uh, or performances from the athletes. I like the interactions with the athletes. I think for me that's also a really big part of it, the rapport. Mm. Um, and then I always like to look at that journey with any of the athletes I've worked with or clubs that I've worked with to sort of see whether or not there's anything more I could have done for them um, or whether what, what could I have done to enable them to do more for themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a great point about being able to help people find some of the answers for themselves. And, and I, I don't know, maybe as a coach, being able to provoke thinking and reflection within the athletes and within those kind of people around you, I suppose. Yeah, and I think... The more you talk to the athletes and the more that you build that rapport with them, the more you learn that they know more than you realise. And it gives you the opportunity to really push more boundaries and get more from them. In British fencing, we, as a fencing nation, we're not particularly strong. But at a GB level, we can often outperform what is expected of us. Um, and you see that in the reactions of the fencers as well when they, when they suddenly realise they can do things. And a lot of this is about building those belief systems into people and obviously creating those environments where they can sort of thrive and, and that's been the real sort of uh, 
joy, if you like, of being involved in, in coaching over the last few years. So a lot of the people I'm working with at the moment are not what you'd say my fences, you know, in terms of they're not people that I've started with, they're not people, but they're people I believe that, you know, working with them and working with their personal coaches, I've been able to help them become better as well and giving them that additional uh, insight into, yeah. into what they can do. So I'm, I'm assuming then, and considering that the theme of our conversation today is around influences, that the, the athletes and the people that you coach and you work with uh, must be an influence on, on you and the way that you coach. Yeah, I, adapt, I try to get to know the fences as well as I can. And so I can adapt, whether it's communication styles, whether it's recognising physical cues, uh, just understanding where they're coming from. Um, and I think that's really important as a coach. We've all seen coaches that expect uh, athletes to adapt to them because that's how they've learned to coach. But I've had really good successes from getting to know the fences um, in my sort of coaching journey to the point that they will come to me and ask for support or help even outside of if it's been on a, a say a GB event or a camp or a trip. So then the, the dialogue changes from me telling or guiding to them coming and asking. I like that. I really like that. And in, in terms of getting to know the fences, I, th I think lots of coaches might really want to think about how they, how they engage with or, or better understand the players or the athletes in their, in their care. What does getting to know them, what does that feel like or look like for you? Is, is, there, is there a level that you, you like a kind of a level of rapport you like to strike with an athlete that, that kind of makes everybody feel really comfortable? So, firstly, it's just understanding how they like to connect. So, for some of them, technology is a big thing, whether it's WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook. And I think a lot of people with obviously the safeguarding rules that came up when they initially came out 10 or so years ago, um, I may not be correct on those dates, but they, when those came out, people suddenly became more mindful of not using those because it was a scary place. But actually, if you're working with younger people, it's understanding how they want to connect with you. But it's also not making the mistake of trying to be their friend because that's not authentic. They're looking for you to be a coach. They're not looking for you to be a teacher, but they're also not looking to be your best mate. They're not going to want to... Uh, you know, you may form friendships that become very strong from it and, and very good rapport, but it's not the same as having a best mate because at some point you need to have those honest conversations with them as well. Uh, if they've not performed or if they've not met sort of behavioural standards, you need to be able to share with them that actually they've not hit that level. Equally, you need to have that rapport that when you do give them praise and feedback, they respond really well from it because they know that you're being sincere. Does that rapport, do you know, I was just thinking something when you were talking there, does that rapport where, where you're able to give that really authentic and genuine feedback, does that work both ways? Are the athletes able to share with you uh, how they feel about practice, the environment you create? So it's almost that feedback is, is not just a one-way process? Absolutely, and we encourage it. So when we're running camps, we then encourage people to ask why. If they're doing any activity, scenario work, training work, and they may become even a little frustrated, we encourage them to ask why. And if they want to call us out on our standards, we've even invited them to meet with our coach developers at British Fencing so that they can then, you know, they understand that we are also there to be challenged if either our behaviours or our performance standards aren't met. And we're not afraid of that. We embrace that because we then learn whether or not we're giving them what they want as athletes as opposed to we're running off of a script and telling them what to do. 
Mm, absolutely. Uh, that, that must take, from, from a, an aspiring athlete who's competing for a place, that must take some bravery to be able to challenge or ask why. Um, because I, I, I can imagine there might be a, a niggling fear about the consequence of asking that question. Will it have an impact on what the coach thinks of me, my place in the squad, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something that you do either yourself or, or within British fencing that um, creates an environment where people feel really safe to do that? Yeah, so we set that out at the start, that actually, you know, conversations that they have are not going to be used against them to then deselect them. Because otherwise you won't find out what's really going on. You don't know if that athlete's got things going on at home. You don't know if that athlete's got other um, areas of their life that's not just about the sport that they love. So... There could be things going on, particularly the age you're dealing with. There could be things going on at university, school, college. That's putting them under pressure, which means that they're not performing, that they're not able to, to focus. So if they then walk into the sport that they love and you've created an environment where they feel that they're going to pass or fail, just like a school exam, then you're not necessarily going to get the best out of them, I don't feel. you know, I don't. So we, we actively encourage that and we make that very clear to them. What we do then expect from them is if we've given them some feedback about areas to improve on, whether it's behaviours or fitness or, or meeting some technical standards, you would then expect to see some level of a response. And then that's what we would measure them on. Um, and then again, that's just about being effective and giving people that feedback and recording it. And that's something we're working on at the moment to even improve that further within British fencing. But it is a culture change as well. Not everyone's in the same place with that journey. It takes a long time. To, to do that because obviously some of the fencers that we meet they're coming from different clubs where their coaching styles have been maybe different so we it takes a little while to embed the fact that we're not out to deselect we're actually out to to make them better yeah and i i, I would imagine that, that 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 takes takes quite a lot of thought and reflection for athletes to, to not just understand that but to fully buy into that process it does, and it's also, you've got to have, again, having that rapport means that you're more likely to, when they're vulnerable, get them to express that they're vulnerable. If you're saying to somebody they need to work in the fitness and they know their fitness is a weakness, they need to be able to feel comfortable enough around you to explore that and to work on it, as opposed to feeling like they're not good enough. And it's a real fine line, I think, between understanding those people. And we won't always get it right, because everybody's different, and we don't always know everything that's going on, but... We have had some really good examples where people have shared with them um, and introduced things like mindfulness techniques um, into our, our coaching setup. So that's becoming part of the process. Um, and that is a fantastic, um, you know, getting to know people's well-being more. I know it's obviously been hitting the headlines, especially since lockdown, but um, really driving home the fact that it's okay for people to talk out about the fact that they're not happy about something. And what we're seeing is people feeling vulnerable enough to talk to us about it and to express feelings. And then we've been able to put additional support around them. And I'd like to think, and, and again, I got a lovely message this morning from somebody saying, thank you so much for everything you've done for me. Um, and you start, you start to realise, you get these embedded messages that actually they really appreciate that, that environment that we put around them so that they can get on and actually focus on the sport they love and not worried about whether or not they're hitting all the targets excuse the pun, but hitting all of the other kind of measurements that are out there in sport, you know, as, as a sort of a pass-fail mechanism. Yeah, brilliant. No, I, I, think, I think that's really important. And for any coaches, regardless of, of the level of the sport that you work at, being able to, A, 
gain the feedback and, and gain the, the ideas of the athletes and the people that you're coaching is really important. But even before that, creating an environment where they feel safe to share what they're thinking. So that can have an impact on what practice design looks like, your approach as a coach. That, that's got to be really important. Um, in just to think- back to, sorry, I mean, I think going back to what you said there about practice design. So one of the things that we did was we talked about what we were going to do with a practice design to make it disruptive. We wanted to see what would happen if we put um, those athletes under pressure in a safe environment. So we set the environment, we let them know what was going on. So even though they knew that we were going to make it disruptive and there was going to be um, a lot of disruption put into the process, what happened was some people reacted in a way that they didn't realise that they would react to. And those are great learning points for us. One, that we were able to put support around them and explain to them why they may be feeling the way that they were feeling, getting them to talk about their feelings and opening up. Equally, getting them to recognise the fact that they were no longer functioning properly in terms of when they were competing because they're under pressure. And examples of that were we would, we'd done some things like brought a loudspeaker into the environment and played background and crowd music through so that it put that feeling of an ambience around the training environment, making it feel like they were a seriously important competition. And we could see people were really struggling with that. And some people flourished as well. So you really got to see how people reacted. And so for the ones that struggled, we could then support them and talk them through it. The ones that had very fast emotional reactions, we could help them as well and, um, and adapt the training around that. And again, I don't think you could do that if you don't have the environment already set up to create that environment to for that to happen there has to be a level of trust that they're trusting to become vulnerable with you fantastic no I, I, absolutely uh, and i couldn't agree more and and i think before we move on to the next point I, I, I think it's about coaches understanding that that doesn't just happen overnight that that's a long-term thing and and it's something that probably takes a lot of time invested to help everybody feel comfortable in that that kind of uh, environment I think it's also using influencers. If you've got the rapport with some of the top athletes in the group and their influencers, if they trust you, the group beneath them will trust you because they will then disseminate that message down, that it's a safe environment, and then the next level get the same environment, that they're okay, those coaches are there to support you, that you know you can ask them a question, you can tell them you're not feeling great. You know, and I think that's the that's where the sort of the skill comes in. Whereas if you if you can't engage or you don't have rapport with the athletes, they, they just maybe see you as a taskmaster or a bit disengaged. Then they, I think you're always going to be really challenged to to get the most out of people. But never mistaking the fact that you're never their friends as such. That you are there's always got to be that level where you still need to be able to be really honest with them if they've not met standards or behaviour standards that you'd expect them. Yeah, absolutely brilliant no fantastic i'd love to rewind a bit if, if that's okay ian because you, you mentioned at the start of the call that you, you started fencing yourself from about the age of seven um and i'm really curious do, do you believe and do you think that the way that you began your coaching journey was very much influenced by the way that you were coached at those early years um or, or did you did you approach your coaching from a from a different point of view or a different perspective altogether I've had only a few coaches. I've not had too many. Um, my first coach, he was brilliantly positive. Everything was brilliantly positive and very supportive and just friendly and fun. So I got that experience of feeling like I was achieving something but just having a huge amount of fun. 
when I then wanted to be more performance orientated, then I started to work with a different coach um, who was all part of the same setup. So it never felt like I was being disloyal or leaving one coach to go to another. Those influences then, they did form part of my understanding the way I may think about the sport. So my coach, my second coach, Brian Pittman, he would make me always think about what's going on in the game, basically. If you do this and they do that, what, what's the reaction? You know, what if you don't do anything? What's the reaction? And he was always questioning rather than telling. So setting that up in, in my mind. And then as I sort of had a few other coaches influence me, or I'd then obviously seen other coaches uh, on an international stage, seeing how they were, uh, either from the side of the piece or in a coaching environment, you do pick up different techniques or different ideas from there. And then I think you just mould them around how you feel that you should coach. The real influence that then changed me was actually coaching some of the top athletes. So as I was then uh, working with some of the younger athletes that went on to be some of the most successful fencers that we've had uh, over the last few years, it was very interesting to see how much that challenged me. I had to raise my game. So there was no peer-to-peer -peer relationship. There was no extent. I was having to look at the athlete and ask them what they needed. And they were also raising their game and telling me what they wanted me to be doing. So in terms of a physical one-to-one -one lesson, I had to raise my game. If I had to go faster, if I had to go slower, make things more difficult, they, it was coming from me. So, And then externally, I've, I've looked at a lot of... Um, a lot of materials, a lot of videos, like a lot of people now using resources out there like Prime and Netflix to just to sort of get those inside understandings of what's going on in other sports, looking at communication styles, because I think it does get to a point where a lot of it comes back down to communication styles. And you see everything from people ranting in American football to the sort of a much more conversational karma approach in American football right the way through to other sports that are obviously... Um, available to kind of watch through those platforms. It's funny, isn't it? I think regardless regardless of the sport that you coach in, when you look at look at the way coaches behave and their coaching skills at a, a kind of a really high end performance level, compared if you look then back down through development into participation, those coaching skills and behaviours probably need to be a little bit different if we're helping people on their journey and, and like all the things you've mentioned before, if you're creating an environment where people feel happy to challenge stuff uh, and like they can be themselves and uh, feedback works both ways, well actually some of those coaching behaviours that you might see in some coaches would, would probably be a barrier to creating that trusting environment. I'd agree. And I think for a coach as well, you need to put yourself in a place that you're ready for that feedback. So if you're not used to having feedback yourself as a coach, I think people emotionally react to that sort of, they either dismiss it or they emotionally react to that feedback because they're not ready, they've not prepared themselves emotionally to hear it. And then once you've obviously had that feedback, then it's about your actions, about whether or not you're going to respond. And I think from what we've seen, I mean, we've even had, when we talk again, go back to the design practice, we've even had the athletes then asking them what would they want to do for their next session. So we've had our bit. We've started this weekend camp, for example. We've taken it to here. We're really happy with the outcome. What do you guys want now? And they said, oh, can we do more of the same or can we do this? You know, we would really like. And then from that, the response and the feedback was they've really enjoyed the session, but they've, they're exhausted, that they're really tired, that they're mentally, they've enjoyed it. 
But I think you're right. I think it comes back to coaches needing to be in a place where they can accept feedback. And I, and I think for some coaches that have maybe never been in a position where, either, especially if you're working on your own, there's a lot of coaches that work out there that just work on their own. Their only feedback is whether they're, if their athletes or their customers return back to them each week. So they don't really get that feedback. As I said, have you ever thought about your coaching practice in this way? You know, have you ever thought about it, what it looks like when you look at your mobile phone in a training session? Those kind of things. And they yeah. can be really simple things. Absolutely. And and I think I think if, if coaches um, are become quite skilled at noticing the behaviours of others or themselves, then they be, can become quite intentional about some of the things that they do during practice. And, and out of interest, you mentioned that, and quite rightly, about some coaches maybe not having um, another person to better talk to about the work that they're doing and no one necessarily able to give them feedback or have a reflective conversation so to speak um across across your journey Ian have you have you been able to engage with or access uh a mentor or a coach developer or anything like that who's helped you um contextualize and and make sense of all all the stuff that you're doing as a coach I think certainly over the last few years um I was part of the UK coaching foundation course cohort two um I was privileged to be put onto that um Jenny Cody was my um, coach sort of developer, if you like, during that. And um, I find just having that inside-out view of myself was eye-opening. I think it it really helped me understand what other people were seeing of me, what my behaviours looked like. So, for example, I was filmed whilst coaching at a competition. And so that's what other people would see if you looked at the lenses of other parents, other uh, athletes, your own athletes, seeing what I looked like on camera was a challenge, but actually I was really pleased with the outcome, hearing what I'm saying by having a microphone on and listening to the language, and that's what came across for me as a reflective piece, where there was a few areas there that I could improve on how I said certain things with a bit more clarity. But also what came across really strongly was that, again, that rapport level, how much fun I was actually having, because you, when you forget that the microphone's there and you just are coaching, you start to realise how much fun you're having between between both parties. And again, I think it takes a lot to get to that stage where you're comfortable to do that. So I would sort of highly recommend any coaches just having a look about how do I how do I see what the athletes see from me? What do the parents see from me? What does that look like? And if you're not comfortable with the answer, then there's something there that you can work on, even if you don't like the answer. Uh, I, I think that's a great point, and perhaps it, it feels really similar, actually, Ian, when you were talking about that that uh, rapport and environment you could, you could try and create with your athletes to help people feel really safe. It feels that the the work that you've done, kind of with with Jenny or a coach developer, is similar in the respect that you can't just flick a switch and be open to all this feedback. It takes a bit of time to feel really comfortable and confident to to share this stuff, and and again, from a coach's perspective show a little bit of vulnerability? Yeah, and again, not. I think just as athletes, coaches then start to worry about if they show that vulnerability, is there a risk that they then won't be able to be part of something or they won't get included in things? Does it show a weakness if the fact that they open up about something and maybe they're wrong, maybe an idea that we had wasn't right? Whereas I'm part of a, a group of coaches that, and it is very much a group of coaches. There's, there's no big I in this group. It's really good. And 
we can share these things or we can bounce ideas. And sometimes even we'll phone each other and go, can I have a sense check? So we've built this group that every now and again, if we start going, am I wrong about something? I can pick up the phone and speak to them. And I don't fear the next week that I'm going to get a letter saying, thanks so much for all your contributions, but you're no longer needed in the programme. But we also have a really good, um, you'll help me for calling this, but a coach developer, Steve Kemp, who he would also check and challenge, but also get us to think. So he'll see things differently. He's not from fencing, which is great, because he sees things from a coaching point of view, and he sees things that we don't see that can add to what we're doing. It doesn't matter that he didn't do fencing. He, he sees sport and he sees people. So then he can also question us and make us think about what else is going on in that, in that space. And so the, his phone is always on, and, if, if, um, and so he's always busy on the phone, but his phone is always on and we can then speak to him about anything that we've got a concern. Uh, I, I, I think that's a that's a, such a brilliant observation because um, when we, we've mentioned this on, on some of our UK coaching coach developer podcasts around the, the benefits of having someone perhaps just to talk to or work with who isn't from your sport and being able to see a situation or, or see an environment with a completely fresh pair of eyes, um, you, you get to see things from a different perspective. And, and maybe it gives the coach developer the opportunity to ask what some inside the sport may see as the obvious question. Um, I'll share, share kind of some of my personal reflections around this. I, I probably haven't necessarily had those formal relationships with coach developers uh, in my coaching pathway in football. Um, but actually, having a having a wife who's who's kind of very open to just listening to my um, my thoughts and feelings around how a practice went, what my coaching is like. Just by having someone there who you can verbalize things to and help kind of make, make sense of and digest, being outside of sport, that person, my wife in my, my situation, can just ask a question sometimes that I've never considered because they see it from a really different place. And I think sometimes as coaches, no matter what sport or level we work in, you can sometimes become really entrenched in that world, and, and I guess there's a phrase around kind of being an echo chamber that you see, hear the same ideas and the, the same messages go round and round. So by engaging with and finding someone from just outside of that, that world has huge benefit. And I think also, again, if you're looking to come back to my very early points around looking to learn faster than everyone else, that's one of the great ways of doing it, is to start to learn to, one, accept feedback, also to reach out for it, so, and be brave enough to actually go out and then ask. Um, if, if you've had a conversation and you think, could that have gone better and someone else is involved, ask them, is there anything that could have gone better in the conversation or could we have done more? You know, and in, yeah, sometimes you do, you do have to then embrace the fact that you may have been wrong, you may have made a mistake, but actually that's part of the learning, that you can then change that or, or prepare yourself better for those conversations so that they don't go in that direction. And also accept the fact that sometimes, particularly if it's around feedback and maybe it's not the most positive, they aren't going to go the way that you want them to go. You know, for example, with the mindfulness, we've had examples where people have, have practiced the mindfulness and the reaction was incredibly emotional and very open and honest, which was fantastic. And we were ready for that. That the environment was put around those athletes that then when they were really mentally struggling and they needed that support from British fencing, we were able to put support around them and follow it up and then support them. So we might not always get everything right in terms of we might not be getting medals, we won't always be hitting maybe some performance standards, but 
in terms of people that are at the heart of everything, we seem to get that bit right, which is why it always surprises me that so many coaches are not willing to look at themselves and go, where am I in that? Why, why do we expect our athletes to have a strong well-being and a strong character and, and do all these things? But as coaches, we don't stop and look at ourselves and go, what do I need to do to, to enforce that message? Yeah, yeah, great point. A great point, Ian. And I think the more coaches who, who are able to press pause and reflect and feel really brave enough to try something new or be open to hearing and receiving some of that feedback, I think is the, the more the better, really. Um, I'd love to pick up on one thing that you said earlier and, and almost mentioned then as well was actually by, by kind of engaging with lots of different ways to learn. So you said you kind of watch things and listen to things, read stuff, um, which has had an influence on your coaching and also having the, that, that feedback with your, your kind of critical friend or, or coach developers. Um, how do you know what, what, what makes the decision for you, what information you're going to adopt or go and try out? In your practice or what maybe you, you're going to reject and say do you know what I, I'm that doesn't feel right for me is is there some is there almost something really conscious for you in terms of that process or is it about what what fits with your your philosophy and your your feelings as a coach I think it depends on what again a lot of those things become about what is the objective so if we're trying to, if we use the disruption techniques as a really good one, if you're trying to create the environment where it's as close to a competition environment as possible, for me, those are the things that you need to make sure that the people in the room are prepared for that, that they are buying into the process. Otherwise, your design practice isn't going to work because they're not going to put into it. They're just going to go through the motions and, and tick over. The, the other part is that I've tried to not do what you said, which was your second question, which is around uh, ignoring certain amounts of training. Because we all know these things go in, they go, they go in cycles. You know, we all know that things, they, they keep changing because sports keep evolving. So things that we were doing 20 years ago or 10 years ago in our sports, they keep coming back as, oh, this is the new thing, but it's not the new thing. It's an older thing. We know that a lot of things are driven by sports science and sports psychology a lot more now um, to help reinforce some of that training. So... To answer your question, I try to make sure that actually there is a design practice in what we're doing, even if it's one session a week that is, if you like, that session that is designed. Because in all of that, you also need to allow for fun. I also think that in all of the design practice, you kind of got to allow for a set time or a set area where people can express themselves and have fun. Otherwise, I think what you get is people just thinking that they're having to follow the script. You know, you, you said you've got to achieve this. And actually, that's where you've got to remember, when we all started out in our sports, we didn't think about performance. We weren't interested in measures. We didn't look at what our hierarchy of needs were. We just played our sports and we loved them. And we either loved them or we didn't. We went to another sport and we loved that sport. And that's what we enjoyed. And I think if you lose an element of that in people's training, and even including yourself as a coach, if you don't have a couple of sessions where you're going to go, right, this is going to be fun for me as a coach, I think that's where you lose some of those elements. And I think you lose people from sport because it just becomes the, either the day job of a professional or if it's a sort of like offensive and amateur sport, which people take very seriously, then I think that's where you lose a lot of people from sports because it's no longer fun. It's just routine. I think, I think there's, a, there's a huge, huge amount of um, sentiment in that around um, making sure that as a coach, you find the practices fun and engaging as well as the athletes, because ultimately it's, it's, 
when we've talked, we talk a lot about practice being athlete centered and listening to you in, it's really clear how, how you, you think in terms of trying to make things really um, exciting and, and uh, applicable for the, for the athletes in front of you. But actually it's not, it's, it's an environment which we're all part of. So it's not the, the athletes environment that the coaches are let into. And it's not the coaches environment that we give a little bit to the athletes. It's somewhere between where the magic starts to happen, I believe. Um, and, and I think what you just said there is, is really kind of hits the nail on the head around finding something that, that works for everyone in that, in that space. Um, so something that I'd, I'd just like to kind of um, ask would be around, we, we've spoken a lot around what's influenced you as a coach and a developing coach. Do, do you believe that the work that you've done with kind of the, the, the young fences that you've worked with has um, had a real influence on either the way that they, they see the sport and, and the way that they compete, but also them as people and, and how they perhaps respond to feedback and um, how they engage with learning in, in other, other elements of their life as well. Yeah, and I've had that feedback from the parents as well about how they've seen their children maybe being really shy when they first took up the sport to having uh, having role models, if you like. I don't like the words role models as coaches, but having role models where the athletes uh, have, have seen your behaviours as a coach and that you've guided them and you'll end up having conversations that maybe not even about your sport, just about life and you can help them, particularly during difficult times around um, whether it's when they've got exams on, uh, whether it's with females and you know, they're going through their menstrual cycle, would do everything. Having that relationship and then seeing them being able to just be themselves more, that's a massive bonus for me. So I don't just work with performance athletes. I work with lots of athletes that are, they do it for fun, some of them. Some of them are, are veterans and, and they, they've got a different need to some of the, the younger children. And, and I do think that when you see how certainly I, I get a lot of satisfaction, particularly of people maybe that have got, um, have had maybe bad behavioural um, history and you're kind of guiding, they're kind of the mavericks in the sport. We always talk about them as mavericks in coaching, but those kind of mavericks with that big character, I've really enjoyed working with them to get them to understand their behaviours and guide them as to what is actually acceptable. And that fine line that those mavericks run between being absolutely brilliant performers but also they still need to remember that they've got to be reasonable people at the end of this. And in most cases, I always feel that the fencers, if they were to stop fencing and coaching, I'd like to think anyway that when they finish, that they're coming out of it better, that they can look back at either their fencing careers or the results and who they've become and look back fondly at the sport. And if I've had anything to do with that, then obviously that would make me hugely proud because that's what my coaches did for me. And there's a lot of the influences, even down to some really bad jokes that my old coaches used to tell me. It was those kind of little connectors or little sayings that used to stick with me that applied to life, not just sport. Yeah, brilliant. I think that's a great point to kind of start to wrap up the conversation really around it. I guess with the, the skills and things that we can help people realise within, them, within themselves actually span well beyond sport. And, and sports the vehicle for helping people feel more confident in uncomfortable situations or whatever it might be. 
Um, so yeah, Ian, just just to kind of wrap us up today, and thank you, thank you for everything so far because I think it's been a really interesting conversation, and I've made pages of notes. Um, would be just for, for all the coaches who are listening, what what advice would you would you give them to help them think about um, when they're reflecting on their own development, what they might want to consider, as in what what influences them that they're really conscious of, and and what maybe could they could they go and have a go at that could help broaden their their thinking as a as a developing coach? I think in my mind there's two things. One is question whether they are ready to accept honest feedback. So if it's positive or negative, in both ways, are they able to accept it and reflect on it to then work out how to improve from that further? So if they're doing something well, could they do it better? If they're not doing something that's as good as they want it to be, what would they need to change to make that better? And I think the other thing would be to look around them in their own environment as a coach. Who have they got around them that's challenging them? So who can they go to to say, does this feel right? Does this, would you try this? Have you tried this? Or I'm thinking of trying this. What are your views? Because in my mind, if, you, if you're working on your own or if you're working even as part of a team, if you don't have that team around you to sort of just check and challenge and be part of that journey, I think you could end up, like you said earlier, you can end up saying, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to ignore that idea that they've used in rugby or in football or in American football. I'm going to ignore that. It might work for them, but that will never work in my sport because that's not my sport. What do they know? I think you can start, you create these walls, and then I think you become a really limited coach rather than we know that the landscape is always evolving. And I think if you don't allow some of these influences to come in and change what you're doing as a coach with that, and then try to read what do you need to do to be ahead of that curve. So I think if you want to be a really good coach, you then look towards how do I then take what I'm doing now and be ahead of the curve to read where your sport's going. You know, And that applies from everything, from participation level right the way through to performance level then. And then you try to stay ahead of that curve so that you as a coach, you know that you're current. You know, because we know sports science is always disproving and proving and um, sort of certain theories. And it's a bit like the 10,000 hours rule that makes everyone now cringe when you start to realise the study that it came from. You know, we don't want those things to get stuck in any of our sports. We need them to be, you need to hear them, but you need to then move on from them and, and build on them. Does that sound fair? Absolutely. So three brilliant points, just to summarise. Um, are you ready to accept or, or, or adopt um, the feedback that might you might receive? Uh, who in your environment is challenging you? I think is a great point. And just being ahead of the curve and, and understanding the direction that your sport is going and probably that of coaching as well and what's really contemporary when it comes to learning and, and development and support. Uh, in some brilliant points there, and, and I think some real, real practical things for coaches to go and think about and reflect on when they're looking at their own practice. So um, it, it just leaves me to say thank you very much, Ian, for the last half an hour or so of your, your insight and your time. It's been brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.